Good morning. morning. So years ago, uh, my mom and uh, her siblings were getting together. Her brother and sister were on a road trip driving to visit. And they made a wrong turn somewhere along the way. And uh, it was back in the day where we didn't have cell phones. So of course, they had to pull over at a truck stop. And my aunt got out and used her dime, you know, for the payphone. If any of you are younger than like age 30, you have no idea what that means. But uh, most of you will appreciate that. And you'll know that we used to have to use a quarter. You know, it went up, didn't it even go up to 50 cents? But anyway, she used her dime in the payphone. And she called my mom and my mom said, where are you? And my Aunt Janie said, well, we are hopelessly lost, but making great time. <laughs> and that has sort of become, uh, you know, a part of the lexicon of my family. It's just kind of a funny thing. It's a pretty optimistic way of looking at life. Um, but I have to admit that uh, I know you all know this. There are times when being lost is anything but funny, and we are not making great time. It can be scary, it's uncomfortable, it's demoralizing, being lost is shame-producing sometimes. Being lost or losing someone or something induces all kinds of painful emotions. And they're emotions that are made even more painful because we engage in the blame game, most often directed at ourselves with things like, I should have planned better. I should have seen that coming. I wouldn't have made so many mistakes if I were smarter. I wouldn't be in the predicament right now if only I had paid closer attention. I'm such an idiot. Who am I kidding? I can't do anything right. And if those stories that we tell ourselves get too familiar, they begin to be the only stories that we tell. I'm not enough. I'm not worthy. I'm hopelessly lost. I'm hopeless. And I don't know about you, but just hearing those sentences feels heavy. A few weeks ago, Robert began this sermon series called Rolling Stones, Releasing What Weighs Us Down. And he invited each of us to envision ourselves somewhere with a lot of stones and envision ourselves bending over to pick up the stones and then carrying those with us. Now, a quick side note here. In my family, we don't even have to envision that. It's just something we do. My husband and kids collect rocks everywhere they go. We go climb a 14er. They'll bring a rock home. Rafting the uh, Salmon River in Idaho, I found rocks in the in the dry bags when we got back home again. Hiking in Peru, brought a couple rocks home, although not from the uh, ruins, the ancient ruins. That would just be wrong. <laughs> I got your back, babe. I didn't want anybody to think, you know, you were stealing rocks from, like, you know, Machu Picchu to take home. The beaches of Alaska even have these awesome, smooth, round black stones, though. And I kid you not, my husband brought home a backpack full of them one time. And I thought, could you imagine being the lady at the luggage thing when we checked in at the airport? Like, whoa, this feels like there's a lot of rocks in here. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, there are. <laughs> Literally. But our friends know that whenever we go adventuring outdoors, they are sure to get a uh, Christmas ornament made from a rock from that special place. And it's kind of a fun thing that we do. But those rocks that I'm describing are fun rocks to hold on to, right? They're memorable and fun. 
And you ought to know by now with this Lenten series that Lent is anything but fun. In fact, our spiritual focus on the rocks that we collect are burdensome and heavy. These are rocks that have names like temptation, bitterness, anger, struggling for forgiveness, hopelessness, inadequacy. And I want to spend a few minutes today exploring the burden of a stone called never enough. The burden of feeling like we are never enough, not good enough, inadequate, unworthy, is directly correlated to how we experience life's challenges and setbacks. Sometimes it starts in childhood. Other times, adult life just gets the better of us and we get knocked around. And sometimes, we've learned that when we experience embarrassment or humiliation, we twist it so that it's no longer an isolated event or experience, but instead we internalize it and it becomes the sum total of who we are, not worthy. The author and researcher Brene Brown is somebody whose work you've heard a lot about in the past few weeks as we've explored these different stones that we carry around. And in fact, if you want to uh, experience or, or see again some of the resources that Robert and I have referred to, uh, we have a, a page available on our website with lots of resources, including the work of Brene Brown and some of the other things that have informed us during this series. And so I invite you to go to the chapel website and check those out. But Brene Brown says that in all of her research, she noted there's only one thing that separates people who feel a deep sense of love and belonging with those who seem to struggle a little bit more for it. And that one thing that separates us is the belief in our worthiness. If we want to fully experience love and belonging, we need to believe that we are worthy of it. And I would argue that the burden of feeling unworthy is often the shortest distance to our feeling lost. I'll be worthy when I make more money. I'll be worthy if I get my act together. I'll be worthy when I publish that book. I'll be worthy when somebody loves me and needs me. I'll be enough when dot, dot, dot. But worthiness doesn't have prerequisites. You are enough right now. And loving and accepting that is truly an act of courage. I want you to envision for a minute that you are the prodigal son. And by the way, prodigal, for those of you who only know the word in the context of this parable, the word prodigal means excessive spending, being wild with your money. So I have a feeling a lot of us can relate to that. <laughs> Imagine that you are the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter, and you've been a little bit sassy with your parents, and you've announced that you're no longer going to live under their roof, but you want an early payout on your inheritance, thank you very much, and you will just be on your way. Your parents, no doubt, will be equal parts heartbroken and relieved because you've been a little bit of a pain in the rear anyway, and your attitude has been a bit challenging. So they send you off with a hope and a prayer, that you will grow into the adult you are meant to be. 
except that you're what we might refer to today as a failure to launch, which if you're not familiar with that term is a little bit unkind, uh, an unkind way of referring to young adults who are having a hard time transitioning into adulthood. So here you are, you prodigal. You've had a wild time. You've made some massive mistakes and messes. And you look around at your life and think, well, crap, this is not how I expected this to go. I'm broke. I'm miserable. I'm depressed and lonely. I'm ashamed. I'm scared. I'm a failure. I can't do anything right. And so you tell me, how much courage did it take for that young man to walk all the way back home and face his parents? This beloved son left home to sow his oats, and he did so in kind of an obnoxious manner, give me what I'm due. But here's the thing, people who have a strong sense of belonging and self-worth don't behave that way. Self-loathing, self-contempt, self-judgment, a sense of never being enough can show up in some surprising ways, including brash brashness and grandiosity. And again, to quote Brene Brown, she says, it can be tough to get a glimpse of the fear and the lack of self-worth that are actually behind all the posturing and selfishness. So the young son storms out, good riddance, I'm better than this, I'm better than you. He was posturing, he was hustling for the attention and the worthiness that he was lacking within. So then things go really bad for him and he comes back with his tail between his legs and he can't even face his father. He tells him, just treat him like one of the hired hands, not like a beloved son, he doesn't deserve that, he thinks. When I think about the prodigal son making the decision to leave the life he'd imagined, the life that was now so far from what he dreamed when he confidently left home, and to go back to his father, I think it must have been the bravest thing that he could do. Why? Well, remember last week, if you were here, Robert talked about shame. Shame keeps worthiness at bay by convincing us that if we talk about our stories, if we admit the mess we've made, people will think less of us. So we hold on to shame and we allow our self-worth to diminish. I'm an idiot. I should have known better. What will people think? Remember that Robert talked about the difference between shame and guilt. Guilt says I did something bad Shame says, I am bad. And then there's somebody else in this story of the prodigal son, too. The elder son. The one we like to identify with sometimes when, in Jesus' parable, because clearly he's the good son. He didn't, he didn't run away from his life. He didn't squander his whole inheritance for the fast life. He was loyal to his father. He made sure the work got done. He paid the bills. He was next in line to inherit everything his fathers had. In today's vernacular, we might even say he was privileged. Yet his reaction to the news that his younger brother was not only home, but there was a celebration being planned that was fit for a king, 
His reaction to that was to move right into comparison mode. But I've been here this whole time. You've never thrown a party for me. I've given you everything. You never gave me so much as a goat to celebrate with my friends. Comparison and maybe a teensy little bit of whining. The writer Anne Lamott says, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even people who seem like they have it all. So try not to compare your insides to other people's outsides. The other thing that the elder son does was he distances himself from his brother. He says to his father, this son of yours, he doesn't even want to claim him. How many of you have thought that same thing? You and I, we are nothing alike. But I'll say it again, people who have a sense of belonging and self-worth don't behave that way. I want to take you back to a basic tenet of our Christian faith. We talk about this all the time here at Snowmass Chapel. It's foundational to our core beliefs. It's what churches preach and billboards and bumper stickers remind us to do. Love God, love people. And you know that this comes from the scripture, Matthew 22, where someone asks Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in all of scripture? And Jesus replies, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, we get the part about loving God and loving others. We forget the part about loving ourselves. We are commanded in Matthew 22 to love others as we love ourselves. Put another way, we can only love others as well as we love ourselves. If I'm shaming, angry, judgmental, and overly hard on myself, guess what I'm going to bring to my relationships? If I think I'm better than others and I can't see beyond our differences, it's unlikely I'm going to invite them to my table. If I'm critical, filled with doubt, and somehow believe that I don't deserve, or that I do deserve to be treated poorly, that I don't deserve to be treated well, I am very likely going to offer criticism, doubt, and to treat people poorly. But luckily, Jesus sees through the posturing and the grandiosity, the comparisons, the self-doubt, the self-loathing. You are worthy of love and belonging now. Right this minute, come as you are. All this talk about self-love and worthiness should not be confused, however, with the humble and honest admission of our great need. It's why in a few minutes, we're going to sing together Kyrie eleison, Christi eleison. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We need that. We need mercy and forgiveness for a whole host of things. But there's nothing we can do to earn it. The Saint Teresa of Lisieux said, Jesus does not demand great actions from us, but simply surrender and gratitude. The bottom line is, you're not worthy. None of us are. Thank God, literally, that we're all saved by grace. 
but you are absolutely worthy of love and belonging. How do we know that? Well, here's a few examples, and as the old song goes, because the Bible tells us so. You were perfectly and wonderfully made, the psalmist says. Every hair on your head is counted, Jesus said. We're all called children of God, Paul writes. It's by grace we have been saved, he says. God has loved his people with an everlasting love, we're reminded in Ecclesiastes. Actually, we're reminded that in Jeremiah, but I like the word Ecclesiastes, sorry. <laughs> For anybody who might have gone back and like been, oh, she was wrong. It was Jeremiah. But I came not for the righteous, but the sinners. That's an important one that Jesus said. He ate with the riffraff. He hung out with the people on the wrong side of the tracks. He spent the night with troublemakers and dared to invite them all into his circle, into his life. And if there's one thing I know for sure, it's this. Jesus came to make sure that the disgraced, the shamed, the fallen, the dishonored, that they all hear this message loud and clear. You are absolutely worthy of love and belonging. You are enough. The good news is that if you still have trouble believing that, self-worth can be taught. We can practice it. We can practice knowing that we are loved and beloved by the one from whom all good things flow. Self-worth is an inside job, so do what it takes to remind yourself in the worst of times that you are chosen, flaws and all. You are doing a brilliant job of living this life. You are worthy of love. You belong. And as Brittany just sang so beautifully a few moments ago, you say I am strong. You say I am held. You say I am yours. And I believe. Whatever it is that you're feeling in that in-between space, that space between being lost and not yet found, remember those words and believe. The in-between space is not wasted time, by the way. The time searching, the time stuck in those anxious moments of not knowing where you are, what's next, what's the next right move. That is exactly the time that is needed, the time that is necessary to define meaning for yourself, including the meaning of your own lostness. Where do I go from here? You may be lost and not yet found, but you can count on one thing. That is exactly where Jesus likes to hang out. The in-between spaces, between death and life, between rejection and affection, between unworthy and always enough, between death and resurrection. In that space, you are loved, whether you do anything or not. You are a son or a daughter of the divine, exactly as you are. You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Grace. If you sit in that space with Jesus long enough, grace will well up within you. Worthiness and acceptance and abundance will well up within you. 
Look around you right now. What makes you less worthy than the person sitting next to you? Not one thing. Grace. At one point or another, we all lose our way. But make no mistake, we are never alone. We are always enough. We may not be where we want to be yet, but that's just logistics and hard work, perseverance, communication, good fortune, good therapy. None of those things makes you more worthy, and not having those things doesn't make you less worthy. Now, in your hand is a stone, which hopefully you picked up as you walked in. If you didn't, I think Ashley is going to walk around here with some extra stones, so just give a little wave, and Ashley will make sure that you have one. And I want you to just hold on to that stone for a minute. All through Lent, we've been talking about the things that weigh us down, the heavy burdens that we need to just release and hand over to God. So today, as you reflect on those times in your life where you felt lost, I want you to consider the tape that runs in your head. We all get lost now and then, but being lost is probably not what weighs you down. The burden the weight that needs to be released is most likely what happens in the in-between space, the words that you speak to yourself. So I'd like each of you to visualize that rock as representing any sense of inadequacy, lack of worth, harsh self-criticism, shame, never-enoughness. And then in a few minutes, when we celebrate communion, we'll have a basket here. When you come forward for the bread and the wine, I invite you to just drop that rock in the basket. And when you do, let go of what that rock represents and ask God to just deal with it for you, to just take that weight from you. Each week, we've been releasing the weights that weigh us down, the burdens that weigh us down. And you can see that our pile is growing here in the front as we add to it each week. The pile grows as we release the things that get in the way of who God wants us to be and the life of joy and peace that God wants for each one of us. And then make sure you're here on Easter morning because something special is going to happen. In the meantime, let us pray.